out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed, we are. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. This is David Eastorm. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it is going to be the turn of the UK subs, because I spoke recently, very recently, to the lead singer, songwriter, Charlie Harper, to find out more about life, love, poetry, painting, and so much more, even hairdressing. Anyway, this is the interview, and after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that exciting subject that was the early years, those formative years. They are so important. Charlie, it's over to you. Well, I was kind of very musically aware when I was very, very young. Um, and I was lucky enough to be 16 when the 60s hit, 1960. So that had a very, very big influence on me. But um, like you just said, um, Bowie and Lemmy, um, very influenced by Little Richard. And um, we were too, we were school kids, but we, we had our own little kind of... Um, we made a stage out of benches and someone had a uh, kind of semi-acoustic guitar and we'll all be clapping and stomping to Ginny Ginny. Yes. <laughs> and some guy who was brave enough, he just didn't care. And he, he got up there and um, strummed that guitar and sung Ginny Ginny and we're all clapping along and making a hell of a row. And it was, it was actually banned. We only had about two sessions and um, this was at the gym hall. <laughs> And, um, you know, the school kind of emptied out into the gin hall and um, uh, it lasted that the second session and the, the teachers found out we were kind of raving to this rock and roll and it was in a band. And, um, yeah, I mean, all, you name them, every one of those old rock and rollers had an influence. You know? Yeah. And what, were your, and what did your, and what were your kind of roughly, what were your parents? Because they obviously lived through the war period, didn't they? And they must have yeah. just had that kind of... Glenn Miller moment and people like yeah. that. So what yeah. were they at all musical or interested in theatre? Um, my my actual blood father was an actual um, uh, not a fighter pilot, but he um, was a navigator and a bomber. Right. And um, I didn't know him. I also he, he he went back to America when I was very young, and then my mother me remarried. So uh, my stepfather, yeah, he was also in the war in India or somewhere like that. And um, um, <laughs> he he was pretty musical. He he kind of um, loved. Um, I think he's he's kind of a, like Frank Sinatra. But most of all, what's the one who was drinking a lot? Not Perry oh, Cullen. Dean Dean Martin. Dean Martin. That's right. He loved Dean Martin. So very oh, sentimental yeah. kind of guy. Yeah. Um, so my mother could sing pretty well, my, um, just around the house, but she had a nice singing voice, me mum. Yeah. And, um, and my stepfather could whistle a tune. Yes. I mean, because I grew up in a village, right? Had a Second World War aerodrome. So that was where we went to play when we were young. And there's, you know, over the years and decades, you know, I was quite fascinated with some of the stories and social history. So did you ever find your father or did you ever one day, you know, because because I've I've got a bizarre, not bizarre, but my mother worked with somebody who who never knew her father, and her mother said, "Please, you mustn't ever find this man," you know. And and but then when 
her mother died, she did sort of eventually find him. And initially he said, no, I don't know anything. And then his wife died and she, and then he said, actually, I can remember your mother. We did have a moment at the disco. Did you ever find your father? No, no, I never really, <coughs> I never really wanted to. Um, I, once I played in the town where he lived in America, and um, you know, I announced on the microphone that my my father lives in this town at Pueblo, kind of south of Phoenix, Arizona. Oh, and um, and um, say <laughs> if there's any, um, my family name is Perez. So I, uh, you know, but um, no one came up. But um, we had a great gig. In fact, it was so wild that the um, the management tried to stop it in the middle of the gig, and I told him, "If you stop it." The place is going to be wrecked, you know. So <laughs> let's go on. Yes, um, it was a, an amazing gig, and um, I was very proud of the people there. That I thought, yeah, that's a town where my blood father comes from, and didn't let me down. No, that is an amazing story, actually. Where were, where did your where was your mother living? What part of East Anglia or England was she in at the time? What was your in, home? In, yeah, East London. East London, right? So it was all. Um, uh, we we were kind of um, I, mean, I was born on you know before the war ended, and V um, two hit the church at the end of our street, and shrapnel went through our back door and kind of um, knocked my pram over with me in it, and um, the the women in the house, my aunt, my mum, and my gran, all kind of screaming and you know because <laughs> um, I was in the room and the, where the, the, the kind of war whip came in and um, it was just filled with dust and they couldn't find me and they didn't hear any noise they thought I was dead but um, they found me under the sideboard like eventually dust, with dust <laughs> did you ever hear because I, I remember seeing the, um, the Keith Richards uh, documentary where he had a similar sound and experience of bombs dropping on oh, his kind of house uh, so he had very, it must have been a very similar period. Yeah, so when yeah. you, when you, the UK subs, when you played Germany, did you ever sort of bring that up at some of the, uh, some of the concerts that you, you haven't killed me yet? It could have gone down. really. Um, really. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, in, in fact, I absolutely love Germany. I mean, it's just, um, I mean, they were lucky enough to kind of, um, not not have an army so everything went back to the people and uh, yes uh, uh, and um it's it's a it's a brilliant brilliant um country except for where we bombed it to fuck and you know it was all these 60s houses kind of grew up which looked very very ugly yes well i i can remember lemmy and uh, everyone i've ever spoke to who <clears throat> are still touring always say playing europe is important but playing germany is doubly important because the German crowd, A, very loyal, and B, will buy lots of merchandise, and so they'll stick with you forever. So, um, yes, I could imagine you probably had a similar experience, haven't you? Germany's very, very uh, rock and roll. Yeah, they they just, just, just love their rock, and we couldn't figure out why we were so popular. We're much more popular in Germany than we are in England, and where we get, you know, a few hundred to a show in England, we get around a thousand in Germany. And um, it's much bigger over there. I mean, yes. try to figure it out, and we just realised they love a chorus and a beer. 
that was it. <laughs> yes, I oh, know, absolutely. I mean, that was the last place Motorhead ever played was Germany. So um, that was quite something. So look, you were obviously, you were, the, you were the perfect age for that 60s experience. So you must have been, throughout that period, must have just been enjoying everything that happened where the world I know it's a cliche went from black and white to color to the sort of suddenly that whole sort of the Beatles to Stones kinks to the psychedelic period of the 67 mm. I mean so what was your then teen years like throughout that decade well, it, it's funny you should you should mention that black and white because um when I when I look for shit on YouTube I go for the black and white black and white rolling stones black and white kinks black and white Beatles black and white everything you know yes. um yeah i mean um all the best thing happened in black and white really uh, <laughs> <laughs> well it's interesting because there was that philip larkin poem saying that the 60s started in 63 with the first beatles album so did you i mean as as that went on when did you start to well you said you were already started to form in bands were you like lemmy and bowie and people like that was it like music was going to be the only way in your life yeah yeah pretty well um, of course, I had to get a day job, but um, by the time I was, oh, I, I was always, I was always kind of playing music or in a band. So, um, uh, yeah, I, I knew it was going to be my life. And when the time came, it was like um, that Roxy farewell to the Roxy, and we offered the Roxy tour. You know, I just left the shop and just left everything, and um, went on the road and never looked back. Yes, well, absolutely. I, I, I was really lucky, really. So with, during the 60s, were you all part of that R&B blues explosion with, you know, like people like John Mayle and Mick Fleetwood and, and sort of the mod scene with like early Rod Stewart and Jeff Beck? I, I, <coughs> I was part of it as I was in the audience and um, I, I played acoustic guitar. I was, I was a busker at that time. So I was playing down the you know, uh, subway um, tunnels. And um, there's people like Rod Stewart. He was a busker at the same time. Um, Al Stewart. We love Al Stewart. Oh, Year, Year of the Cat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, we shared the same pitch, actually. And we, we actually done the same, a few of the same songs, like Dylan covers and um, uh, Woody Guthrie covers and stuff. Yes. Uh, so um, yeah, I, when all the electric stuff happened, I was playing acoustic, and then I kind of um, I kind of teamed up with a guy who played flute, and um, you know, and he played uh, flute while I was playing guitar and, and singing, and um, he said to me like he'd, he'd love to play guitar. So I started to kind of teach him to play guitar. And then he went hot picking in Kent and came back and he was a fully fledged guitarist. So I decided oh, okay. to, um, you know, we, we, he got an electric guitar, I got a bass. Oh yeah, before that we, um, we'd, on a Saturday night, we'd go upstairs in, um, um, in Leicester Square and go and see the live bands playing in the pub above. And um, we looked at each other one day and uh, we can do it, we could do that. And so, you know, we, we got electric stuff and started to form a band. And yeah, that, that was kind of it. That was kind of setting the ball rolling. Yes. 
So what did you, how did you all sort of 60s progress then? Because because obviously there was a lot of change from that early period, you know, like you said, the black and white film, which everyone looked quite sort of uptight. Then drugs, lots of people taking LSD, smoking, mm. things got, got very sort of hairy and sort of colourful, but in a good way. And, you know, music started to change quite radically. And then sort of, you know, I know this is really simplistic. Okay, 67, Summer of Love, people loved it. Then it, things start to get a bit sort of dark and sort of sinister towards the end with, you know, you had Charles Manson, you had Al Altamont, you know, Jimi Hendrix, Jim, uh, Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin die. And a lot of the people I've interviewed who were part of that scene, like Barry Miles from sort of IT and, and uh, that kind of groovy scene, they kind of finished. That was a bit like, and when I interviewed them, they said, and I said, well, why did you stop? And they said, we were just really tired. We just, we just had it by the end. You know, we just wanted to go to sleep. Mm. So they didn't really, you know, their 70s isn't really memorable and they just kind of got on with the rest of their lives. So how did you sort of navigate? Because suddenly, you know, you had the, the glam period and frankly, that wouldn't have, you know, Bowie yeah. wouldn't have gone down very well with the 60s because it was, though well, it was I, kind of... I love Mark Bolan and I, I actually um, went to follow Mark the Hoople around all the clubs around London, um, you know, in the small clubs in their early days. And then so Bowie gave them that song and made them huge. Yes, uh, all the young dudes. And um, I forget um, that they were going to do a record, or didn't they? They did do a record by this producer who produced The Clash. And then he was going on to produce us, but he died. Um, can't remember his name. Right. But I think he was quite bonkers, wasn't he? Yeah. He used, he used to throw yeah. things around the studio. Yeah. Our guitarist wouldn't, wouldn't have, you know, he didn't want us to do it. Me, me and Alvin were a bit more rock and roll and we wanted to go with this guy, crazy or not. Yeah, so you had definitely a, a sort of a folk. I mean, I love early Al Stewart and obviously Rod the Mod. So you were, you were definitely coming from much more of a folk, beatnik, peacenik kind of background, weren't you, at that stage? That's that's kind of yeah. I, I was I went around with a lot of beatniks in that yeah. but they, they were kind of because I was always on the edge of something. I mean, um, they were listening to kind of quite wild jazz and out there. But then again, come to think of it, I had an Ornette Coleman album. You know when he played the three three things at once. Nice. Now there's this guy called Ormac Coleman. He had a dream. He was playing these three things at once, and he, for years, he tried to. He got he got the one saxophone and the other kind of um, uh, thing, and he he couldn't find the third one for ages and ages, and he found it in Africa, and then he got famous by playing these three instruments at once. Okay. Yes. And, um, I thought it was amazing because I've always loved, you know, kind of out there stuff and um but i didn't fit in with the um the beatniks that much especially when boys try to kiss me and i kind of um <laughs> <laughs> yes but did you did you read jack kerouac's on the road was that one of your books um i didn't have that book but i had um is it dirty old men is that one of his? I can't remember. Dharma Bums was one. I can't remember if it what other. I think we just all read On the Road and that was it. So then, no, you know, was, like, um, so, Charlie, Charlie's Saskowski or something. Like that. Right. One of those San Francisco guys, I'm sure. Look, 
So as the 70s progressed, we had this sort of obviously the glam period, then we had more heavy metal, and then we had the sort of prog rock period. And then, and then sort of slowly, you know, the punk scene was developing with people like Dr. Feelgood. So when did you sort of, when did the band think, right, this is it, we've got ourselves a band, a lineup, and a name? Well, I love Dr. Feelgood, and I, I had a band exactly like that um, back then. Um, you know, it was called Pub Rock. Yes. And uh, we were the band that didn't get signed. <laughs> and basically, because we mainly played covers, you know, everyone else was doing um, their own, inserting R&B into their own thing. Um, um, even the 101ers were doing original material. Um, uh, they all had their own material, and we, we kind of didn't really write our own stuff. Um, maybe, you know, one or two we threw in there, and they were kind of okay, but... We were kind of lagging behind, always kind of lagging behind the scene a bit. But, um, you, you know, I was on the scene and I was playing down um, the, the, the Hope and Anchor at the same time as the 101ers. And I was down the Roxy before it was even called the Roxy. So I bumped into that scene kind of almost by chance. The Roxy just happened to take over Shagaramas, which was a lesbian club. <laughs> which let me in. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> and food um, in those days. Yeah, so um, that become the Roxy, and um, and quite accidentally, I kind of fell into punk rock. Yes. I mean, my band. I, I I I said to my band, "You've got to come down to the Roxy. You've got to see these bands. This is the future of rock and roll." And when I did take them down there, <laughs> they immediately said, I want to be a punk band and fuck you, you know, we, we're being a punk. And I said, yeah, do it, I'm too old, you know, I'm an old rocker and, um, you know, that's not really for me. And, um, but then Nicky Garrett came along and he didn't like rock and roll, so we had to do our own stuff and do it, we did. Yes, absolutely. And I found, I found like punk rock, something I could slip into so easily fitted me like an old glove. Yeah, so absolutely. places. Did you, I mean, because I did an interview with the guy from Doctor, Doctors of Madness, Richard Strange, and he, mm. and he sort of said that he was like, with his band, they were two years too early sort of for that real punk explosion because they, they were playing and all the people in the audience went on to form bands. Exactly. Like, like there's, there's those bands who, are, uh, they had too much of the 70s in them. And so they were kind of dis disregarded by the body of punk. I mean, the, the musicians loved them. And they, I mean, they, they had a lot of shows, you know, but um, they had too much 70s ideas where punk, you know, um, I kind of got it. And if you kind of get what's going on and, and about um, the simplicity of the guitars rather than the little twiddly bits, yes. um, we, we done we done okay. I think we got, the essence of it. Yeah, absolutely. And the rawness and the excitement. Yeah. yeah and yeah, also, I suppose, you know. That's it. You didn't it sound like... like... It was like the spirituality of the punk rather than, you know, twiddling about on trying to play well. Yeah, you weren't, you weren't Steve Hackett, were you? Well, not you, yeah. but your guitarist probably wasn't. But did you, I mean, one of the great people from that period and actually from this sort of 80s onwards was John Peel. And obviously you got a John Peel session quite early, which must have felt really like you were kind of on the right track. Yeah, you don't look at it like that when you're back in, in it. But um, 
he, you know, looking back, he made us. He was a great help. Um, he actually did love the band. He wanted to manage the band. And it was because of our simplicity and naiveness, I presume, but we had the energy. Yes, absolutely. And then, and then obviously, I mean, you'd gone from that 60s period, you know, with your acoustic guitar to suddenly being part of a scene. I mean, obviously at the time, you don't really have time, you know, you don't really and not acknowledge that but but then you know you must have been surrounded you know you were supporting the police and obviously they go on to be one of these huge bands and people in the audience must have all gone on to be you know forming bands as well so did you did you feel at all like you were part of a scene that was going that you thought ah I didn't get this in the 60s but we definitely got this in the 70s um I'm not thinking too much about that you know I'm all I'm just thinking about you know, writing songs and the sound of the band and just the musical side. I don't really worry too much as what's going on around me where, you know, we've had people in the band that kind of um, care what critics say, for instance. And I've never been like that, you know, like, you know, couldn't really give a shit what critics think or say, and unless they say something nice, oh, thank you. But um, yes, so we've had some very, very nasty, you know, things and they've never really understood what we're trying to do, you know, they're, they're, they're saying things that we're not even trying at. So, um, you know, well, yeah. you've got your good thing and I've got mine. <laughs> but then your first album, Another Kind of Blues, isn't it? Which was um, a play on the Miles Davis album, which we all went and bought because yeah, we were all trying to... It noticed my rubbery, but, but um, yeah, <laughs> I mean, uh, as I say, I, you know, I had a nice little jazz collection. Um, I hardly ever play it now. I just, I still kind of play um, We Three Kings by Ronan Kirk at Christmas time. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> it goes on for about 20 minutes, so it's a nice little atmospheric kind of thing. Um, <coughs> but yeah, I, you know, I love Charlie Ming Mingus. I still love um, and listen to um, John Coltrane and people like that. And um, just almost everyone, even like modern people, you know, there's, um, I can't pronounce the name, but there's a girl who plays bass and sings, uh, American girl, like, um, she's really, really good. And yes. there's another, another girl bass player, plays with um, Jeff Beck. Um, sometimes. Um, I know that Bowie had a girl, Dorsey, who was kind of his bass player for a few years. Oh, she's brilliant. She's brilliant. Yeah. So she's yeah. very good. And can you, I mean, with, you know, this was, you, you recorded this in 79. So obviously punk had had its kind of, especially sort of 76, 77. And I mean, you had CBGBs and Max's Kansas City in New York. So there was all that punk scene going on with, you know, the Ramones and Talking Heads and then Blondie. I mean, by the time you recorded this one, how was how was the band for you? Because most people in, you know, that I've interviewed who, you know, especially in the 80s, they have a kind of a bit of a five year kind of period and then things that they sort of go, blimey, this has been a bit hard work and we're still a bit broke. And mm. that's when they often finish. But you've been together for quite a few years before you got this first kind of studio album out. Yeah, um, yeah it all seemed, now looking back, it all seemed so quick. Um, um, you mentioned two clubs back then in New York, which... Oh, yeah, CBGB's um, and Max's Kansas City. I never, I'd never went to Max's, but I, I was... CBGB's became one of my favourite bars. It was a 
great, great bar. Whoever was on, it, it was just a nice atmosphere. Yeah. Um, except for, you know, if bands like us come along from England, the place would be so jam-packed you couldn't move. It was, wasn't very comfortable. Um, but, um, yeah, on a kind of a nice night, it would be, be just a lovely place. And um, Pete is yes. And what's your memories of doing your first, you know, this first studio album? Because this is with John, produced by John McCoy. And um, yes, the famous. So was that, you know, did that all go well? Yeah, um, it went well. <laughs> I, I kind of, I'm always pushing the guitar up and saying like, you know, and, uh, and you know, and people telling me, uh, no, it's your voice that's selling the stuff. So we've got to have your voice up and, I never agreed with that. I wanted the guitar up. So it's been a constant struggle uh, all along, even now. Um, you know, I want the guitars really loud and special things happening in the guitars and people are going, no, no, can't do that. Right. Blimey, <laughs> the frustrated singer. Well, no, normally people, yes, well, I suppose, you know, it depends who you, who you want to sort of emulate, really, isn't it? But did you find, because because each, I sort of realise each scene lasts quite a short period of time, don't you? You know, like you had the sort of 60s period, which, you know, it's great, and then it starts getting a bit poor, like glam again, you know, prog rock, punk as well. And sort of, you know, you had that period of punk and then post-punk. And then the sort of the 80s started to develop and you had the mainstream sound with people like Trevor Horn. Then you had that kind of, I suppose, indie pop world. So how were you starting to navigate, you know, going into the 80s with the band? And and because it's you and Nikki at the, you know, Garrett, weren't you sort of the main people driving it? Well, the, you know, Nikki was like, had as much even more input than I did. And, um, and I was all, there's one, I remember one, one album which was you know like just about our best album endangered species where it was the slowest song and nikki done this really haunting uh, solo with um quite a lot of reverb on it a bit like old days frank zappa kind of thing and um i i absolutely loved it and he hated it and he put it right down in the mix and i thought you know doing that it looks like a mistake you know or something and then 20 years later, he re-released the same album with a fresh uh, mix and put the, and then realised he had done this lovely little solo and stuck it up a bit. But um, it was always a constant struggle. Yes. And, and, and still am. And um, I've just been like on the internet today, typing away for this guy in Ireland, um, um, Peter Peter Jones, who um, a lot of people listen to this might recognise the name. I can't remember the band he plays in, but um, promote, promotes a lot of stuff in Ireland, mm. and um, he kind of um, got a, got this record label and, and stuff, and decided to do this new record, which is just mine, all mine. <coughs> Excellent. <laughs> so I was going to go into a Monty Python then, my theory. <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah and I can do what we do what I want you know yes yeah. I mean did I mean were you I mean because just briefly before we uh, I mean you also during the 80s I mean and you remember sort of Thatcher came into power in 79 and then you had we had the Falkland you know war and then you know there was there was obviously the minor strike but you you know there was a lot of news about Poland and you were one of the first bands to play in Poland so that must have felt 
quite an extraordinary experience as well because things could get very tense, couldn't they? Mm. Well, um, um, we almost stirred things up as well because um, we went over there with um, hundreds of solidarity t-shirts to sell. I and mean, when we got there, we found that um, they were banned. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a good start. And even the fans said, you know, uh, um, solidarity, you're, you, know, you know, half of them were communists and half of them wanted to be free. And it was a very difficult situation, but our drummer sneaked one on stage. He wore one on stage every night. And then it was like very regimented, like 10 kids would come into the dressing room with signed photos and shit like that. And another 10 would come in and they'd come out. And, and along the stage, we didn't have um, security. We had the fucking army with machine guns. <laughs> you know, so um, it was very regimented and very... And, you know, but, you know, I mean, the army that did come into the dressing room, you know, we were kind of messing around playing with their guns. So they were, they were a nice, <laughs> let, us, let us abuse their guns, you know, so. Um, well, yes. Yeah. But I guess, I guess it would have added a certain amount of tension. You wouldn't want to kick over no, the mic. No, no, when, you, when you're there in the middle of it, it uh, I, not for me. I mean, we, we played a prison in Argentina and the band were kind of quite scared. And I, I went. I went down into the prisoners for a minute, talking or trying to talk to them, and um, broken Spanish. And um, um, it was it was quite fun. Yes, and with with sort of keeping the band together, because because it has you know, I mean, especially the early years, your lineup changed quite a few times, didn't it? You know, sort of in that sort of, especially the the sort I think of. Think there's uh, been about eighty eighty personnel through the subs. I, I, yes, I, I was just wondering, you, you must spend a lot of time with your Christmas card list going, oh, who, who, who will I remember this year? <laughs> um, <laughs> do you, did that, was that quite hard to keep that all together? You know, sort of like, oh, Christ, we've got a new... Got well, you know, after, I mean, when we, when we got the recording lineup with um, Nicky, Pete and Paul, I'd already been through some, like, three lineups. Um, so, um, by the time, you know, um, it changed again. Um, I'd like to think it changed for the better. Um, but, you know, the original band, which we think is um, Nicky, Pete and Paul, was a good band, you know. Yes. And, and um, the, the, the second lineup imploded quite quickly with um, Steve becoming a chronic alcoholic, which, you know, he says he's on his third book. That should be interesting. And um, so um, right yes did it was it was it quite messy at times the yeah world very messy yeah you know they're, they're, someone um tony someone he came back this guy came back from um america just um came off tour with a band and i was at a hundred club bar and you know i'm like he says child just come back I, you know like um i need to go on tour um you know you know, can you give me any ideas? I said, yeah, we <laughs> we need someone tomorrow. We're going on tour. And things happen. Yeah, just like that. And that's the kind of thing what happened, you know, like um, the last minute, you know, someone would come up, you know. Yes. Well, that's quite impressive, actually. And what, I mean, because in those days, I mean, you know, I did an interview with, with Fast Eddie and he was, you know, he said that there was a lot drinking and a lot of drugs i mean everyone you know and it wasn't you know in a way it was a miracle that original three 
original lineup of the yeah. three famous ones kept together for the amount of albums they did because it did sound like it was the tension between them was was quite hard. It's, it's, a, it's like um, a tightrope, you know, you've got to balance, you know, you can <coughs> you can e easily fall off, you know, and um, and it is so easy to fall off because everyone's offering you drugs. I mean, I, you know, last tour I was on, you know, I got offered stuff, you know, 75 year old, you know, give us a break. <laughs> when did you, did you have a moment where you thought I've got to just stop some of this? Did you ever have moments where you just thought I'm not in control? Only, yeah, booze a couple of times. I'd done my liver in and doctor told me um, if I don't stop, I die. So I yes. stopped. And did it? Did that? Did that? I mean, did you? How did you feel with your bandmates sometimes when you thought, "Just keep it together. We've got a good gig here, and you're you're not doing it." Well, you know, you know, there's always one in the band that overdoes it, you know, and I I can't turn around and go, you know, what I do, I take the piss, you know, if if he's kind of fucking up or, you know. You but you know you've got to take more drugs. You know they're not working. You've got to take more. Uh, you know get more drunk, and you know hopefully it kind of like reverse psychology. And um, but it doesn't. It doesn't work. No, it probably it probably doesn't. Do it. <laughs> I mean, when you're young and your body can cope. Because interesting, because yeah, during the eight. I mean, during the eighties. I mean, and it was one of those things. I was doing an interview with. Uh, a guitarist who was kind of around in the sort of late 70s and early 80s and we were talking about you know that was American you know he'd worked with Iggy Pop and he was just saying that well we were saying that you know with, with Debbie Harry she, you know, she was in her 30s when she sort of hit and you think god oh, 30s is quite incredible and you obviously were a bit more of an elder statesman during the whole 80s period but you were sort of very much part of that scene weren't you so you you know it was kind of interesting you managed to sort of keep that going throughout that decade um kind of is yes and no, i'm very kind of young-hearted kind of guy so i'm always like i get on stage and i'm 19 years old you know so um i kind of relate to people and you know because i've been through all that kind of druggy drinking mess i i i tend to let other people get on with it but if they fuck up on stage too much the band will go we're not working with that guy anymore so it's not really me but it's a uh, you know, I don't mind us being drunken slobs. In fact, we've done that a lot on stage and had great write-ups for it. Um, thank you, NME. <laughs> they, <laughs> they hate us until we're fucking so fucking fucked up we can't play. And um, but um, yeah, I can't. I can't. You know, I can't practice or yes, got to practice what I preach. You know. Yeah, and then during the eighties, you sort of brought out like nearly an album a year. You know, I mean, Bowie did it in the seventies, which was very impressive. So during that period, the creativity as well as the the amount of personnel changing was quite phenomenal. You did sort of seem to have it. Did you at the time feel? I mean, the band must have been twenty four seven, if not a slightly more, if that's possible. Sorry, you know, go on. I'm just. I know, and I no, I was like just saying. I mean, I was just saying to to because most people they do a tour. They you know that well they do the album, they do the tour, they have a bit of a break. You know, sometimes quite a long break. You know, with some bands, and then they do another one when they feel like it. But then you must have been just kind of constantly doing the touring, the studio, the tour in the studio, mm. while sort of 
navigating all the other interesting parts of the world that is rock and roll. Yeah, the, the, the problem with us, we toured so much. I mean, you know, up to last year, we were still doing three or four tours a year and no time for a studio. So we kind of had to work the studio around the summer tour of England, where we're kind of basically do weekends. We work on a, we be, be, be working as playing on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, maybe Sunday, and then we go in the studio on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday uh, while we're on tour, and that's the only way we could work get a get an album out. Yes, um, we've always had people kind of falling over themselves to to. Want, a, want albums out from us. So um, there, there's never been a problem there. Um, so it yeah. was just in a recording studio and trying to do it. Yeah. And also during the sort of the very early 90s, you, you were working, you had a quick, another one, quick personnel <coughs> inclusion on guitar was, was the guy from Rancid. Rancid? Yes, oh, um, Lars. Did that was that an interesting experience? I mean, did that give the band an extra sort of buzz? I tell you, the, the story of Lars, who I love, I absolutely love him. Um, and you know, when he came over, I, I, I was married to a, an American woman at the time, and she took him in like her 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 baby. <laughs> and um, he, you know, and still we have this father son relationship, you know. Um, but um, he was only about 17 and he came to our shows in, in America and, you know, for years on end. And um, I think by the time he was about 19, 20, you know, he, he told me, he said, if you ever want a guitarist, you know, I know all the stuff. And, you know, so I took that in. And then the guitarist we had became from an alcoholic to a chronic. Thank you, honey. Um, a chronic alcoholic. And... Um, we let him go and I called Lars and he came straight over. But within a year, he became a chronic alcoholic. And um, yeah, so... Um, there you go, a lesson. Was it just good as... <laughs> it's obviously not the band. Was it just the light? Well, you know, um, you know, one can... He, he, he kind of... He was a mess when he went back to the States. And he managed to get another band of his own together. And then he was spotted by um, Tim Armstrong. Because he was always a great musician. Yeah. And um, uh, he, he, he would play me little riffs when he was with the subs. And they were great. I thought, yeah, we'll definitely record that. But um, the band thought he was just, you know, a big fuck up and um, didn't want to play with them anymore. So I had to send him home. And then he wrote those songs for Rancid. And um, Sky, you know, they were shot into the hemisphere. Yes, that must have felt quite interesting. I mean, did it, um, I mean, making those decisions with, with musicians, did that, was that something that you just had to get used to when, when yeah. sort of things got too messy? I always, I always looked on it as, um, you know, a little bit of a new sound, you know, a new challenge. And, and I always kind of, um, not actually welcomed it, but, you know, it was a challenge. And, I'd, um, yeah, we, we'd get a different sound out of this, this one or that one. Yes. Um, and also, what did the did it get to the point where you ever sort of gave the band kind of like that's it, the band's over. I've had enough of this kind of in, not industry, oh, yeah. but this career. I've done that. I've done that a few times. Yeah. Yeah. And was it? And were you quite serious at the time? I I've, I've kind of I, I've I'm, I've left the band 
you know, like three or four times, maybe just walked away. Um, and also, um, I've I've quit the band, but <laughs> they've kind of um, pleaded with me, you know, um, to come back <laughs> a few times. So I can walk away. I've got no, you know, if things are going that wrong, I will walk away. Yes. Yeah. Well, when was the first time you decided to say that's it? Do your Ziggy Stardust? Oh, um, first time. It, it, I mean, it's happened quite a lot. Um, I think it's when um, I had a couple of guys and they were big drinkers, but then they started getting to um, coke, and um, they they it completely changed their personality. Um, they 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 came from, you know, good guys, good laugh, um, and turned into just um, assholes. Right. I, I just I just had enough. You know. Yes, that must be. And so coming to the... was a, it was a bass player and guitarist. I can't remember who the drummer was. Maybe it was our Pete, who was always, always kind of a steady guy, Pete Davies. Yes. I mean, that must have, um, so did that sort of, did they have to go and then you came back or did they just stop the coke? No, I just, I, I, I just said, that's right. I'm backing in, I'm walking away. Yes. And um, how did that feel when you did that, when you woke up the next morning? Did you feel kind of like, I don't care anymore? Or was it something like well, shit? Um, you say the first time I'd done it and the first time I'd done it was, um, that, that wasn't the first time, actually. I've just realised that the first time I'd done that was in um, 83, back then. And, yes. um, yeah, and I, I was in bed the next morning <laughs> thinking, what am I going to do now? And um, <laughs> the phone rings, and there's this woman on the phone. I can't remember her name. Tracy, Tracy Lee, who um, put us in a few... Um, pubs in, in London, in, in Islington. And um, she said she's um, doing this children's cancer relief fund and um, can, can the subs play? And I said, well, there isn't a subs anymore. <laughs> and, and she said, surely you can get a few musicians together. <laughs> and I did that. I said, yeah, give us a, a day and I, I'll... And I did, I, I, I called up a few people. They, I called up Pete Davies. He was there. Um, oh no, it wasn't Pete around at the time. Another guy, uh, Steve J. Jones, and Captain Scarlet when he first joined the band, and um, Steve Slack, who was playing bass with us before Paul Slack at the very beginning, and um, and then we done this thing, and then we got signed up by Jungle and done a record, and in that summer we toured in the states. And we'd done the um, Olympic Auditorium in Los Angeles with 6,000 people going mental. <laughs> and, <laughs> and the rest of the band who wanted to, uh, the whole thing, they wanted to be a stadium band. So we were doing the stadium and they couldn't even get a gig in CBGB's. No. Did you ever, I mean, did you navigate, you know, the world? I mean, guess that's the other thing that a lot of people get stumbling because they don't really understand the publishing. But then you had that sort of the whole thing with legality, because there's like, I do believe, that there was a band in the 70s called the Rubettes, which I'd forgot about. And then someone said, do you know, there's three versions of the Rubettes. And you're thinking, Christ, 
three. There's two versions of Barclay James Harvest, which was amazing. So did, was there ever two versions of the UK subs? No, 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 no luckily enough, um, <laughs> yeah, it wasn't. I don't. I couldn't remember. Luckily, so I used to see um, a version of the Sweet, which was the lead singer's um, Sweet. Um, and then there was the other ones, weren't they? There was one. I think there was the, there was a band called the Beat, and I think there's one that are based in Britain and one based in America, in LA. Because actually, with your current lineup, you're still with Elvin Gibbs, aren't you? Yeah. So that felt, that must does that give you a bit more kind of feeling of like someone who's there, you know, who's literally been there most of the time with the occasional break. Yeah, Alvin's good, he's, he's a great, you know, I'm, I'm writing my book in, um, at the moment and, um, you know, and I put him down as possibly the best um, punk rock bass player in the world, and which he probably is. And um, yeah, he, 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 he loves a tour in life. All the subs, you know, um, Bless them. They've always liked being on the road and touring. And um, although they do get a bit ragged after a few months, and um, but you know they they love being on the road, love being on on, on a live stage and um, doing their stuff. Because so, with your um, tour, it's interesting with your touring because I remember sort of watching because I love my Fleetwood Mac story. God, I love the Fleetwood Mac story. And Mick Fleetwood was saying that the thing is he just loves being on the road. He loves his mm. kind of checking into a hotel clean sheets, nice soaps, towels, the whole lot. And, you know, yeah. he looks at the camera and says, sorry, sweetie, but, or to his wife or girlfriend at the time and say, you know, this is what I really love doing. And, and he's obviously yeah. from that 60s period as well. I, I, I can appreciate all that. Yeah, the, yeah. the fresh sheets, if you get fresh sheets. If you get fresh <laughs> sheets, level, nice to have. At level, you have to have a little sniff of the pillow, you know. <laughs> yes, not a Motel 8. And then summer. bring lots of um, pillow mists with you. Yes. <laughs> Yes, and and you know, obviously he loves you know he loves that hotel you know touring, getting you know the adrenaline and stuff like that. But a lot of the bands that I have interviewed from the eighties, the indie bands, the one thing that often finishes them. There's two. There's like the period of time about five years, the second album where things aren't going terribly well. And if anybody ever tours America, that seems to be the thing that finishes finishes them off. Yeah. Obviously, the kids from the eighties have no stamina, have they? So how come you're well, one of the brats? I call them. <laughs> yeah, they're smart kids. They they are all that all that lot from the indie the indie scene. They're just um Wimps. you know, they're college kids. They come from middle class families, they're just spoiled. So doing the States where they've got bugs bugs in the bed, great huge cockroaches rolling down the room, yeah, freak them out completely. <laughs> Yeah, because I suppose, and also I think the enormity of the place, and also sometimes you play in front of, you know, a few people, sometimes thousands, but it's that slogging it out that often, you know, yeah. it's often with the interview that it's often, you know, like, oh yeah, we did America, we came back and we split up, and it's like, oh, that was the end of the band, basically. You know, we, we did a few more things. It is but I mean, you imagine coming out of a club and um, getting loaded in the van, and then, you know, two o'clock in the morning, starting out driving to the next city, driving through the night. One of them really, really taxes you. You get a few of them, you, you're dead, you know, you kind of, um, you, you want to go home. And it's only the real toughest of the tough can tough yes. it out. 
Well, 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 Lemmy, you know, I mean, my God, he was playing, like I said, he was playing Germany in de December and they were all planning the tour for next year. And he died at the end just after Christmas that, that month. So you can see that there was something a bit about like, I'm going to tour. This is my life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you, you know, Lemmy was more sick than people realise. Um, and um, if you're sick like that and, you know, you, you've got to be pretty tough to do the road thing. Yes, well, absolutely. And did you, I mean, because there was one of those amazing, I mean, they have a lot of festivals now. They're big, obviously, you must get booked for those as well, which has given the band a lot of a, another kind of audience. But did you ever play places like Las Vegas? They're sort of bowling and punk weekends. Did you ever do Vegas with there? Because they love their punk, don't they? We were booked, we were booked to do that about three times. And, uh, you know, three times they cancelled on us because they hadn't kind of done the, um, the listing yet. And they managed to get a big band, so they had to cancel four little bands, you know, we being one of the little bands, you know, right. because they had us over there. But, um, yeah, I met, I actually, um, seems a bit name dropping, but last year we were in Hollywood <laughs> and um, we, we were touring America and uh, me and the missus and our drummer decided um, to stay in Hollywood and go to this thing where the Sex Pistols were playing, but it was just Steve Jones and the drummer. Paul Cook. And then, and then it was Billy Idol and someone who was playing bass. It wasn't that. I know. Somebody... Anyway, um, any, anyway um, they wanted, they want, that's right, they wanted us to play that gig. But, um, you know, Alvin and the other guy wanted to go home and... So we didn't, but we were invited to the gig anyway. Nice. Uh, yeah, what, yeah, yeah. And how did you uh, get on with with um, Steve? Because we didn't meet him. It was so. I mean, it was so fucking crazy. We got in there and um, we were right at the back by the bar, of course. And um, yeah, we we kind of just we tried to we tried to go back, but you know, it was crazy. Yes. And and as you mentioned, because the one thing that I've noticed is the passing of time puts things in perspective or certainly makes people appreciate things. And I've sort of worked out that, say, 25 years, roughly, is, you know, it's like, it's not just about nostalgia, but often going back and thinking, ah, that was pretty amazing. Have you, do you feel that you're starting to get, well, not starting, but getting more kind of critical acclaim and sort of... Um, yeah, sort of valued more now than you did, say, back in the 80s or even the 90s or the noughties. Mm. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean, like I say, again, I, we don't kind of um, look for it or we haven't a publicist or anything like that, which we actually did back then in the, the early days. But, um, but, but we do. People kind of respect us for our longevity and, um, the, the, you know, the music and playing the music. Um, which a lot of people now, and we, you know, we call it like real punk. <laughs> yes. Uh, not, the, you know, the hardcore, although um, we kind of started the whole hardcore thing. Um, I think uh, the Anti-Nowhere League and the Subs went to America and it was billed as hardcore punk from England. And that was the beginning of how it was called hardcore. Otherwise it was um, hardcore sex. <laughs> and, and it was just you're describing hardcore sex and we were and the, our female manager at the time you know thought she called punk hardcore punk 
could have got a bit spinal tap. But did you, I mean, because you said you're writing your book at the moment. What was, has, how's that been as a process? Well, we came off the road in um, February and then this um, virus came along and I've been in, in my little house and garden all that all that time and um so um the book came along last year and um or was it the beginning of this year um but um you know it's given me plenty of time to write the book so um i'm on a i'm on a good 200 maybe coming up to 50 pages and i aim to do it 325 pages um so um it's it's some and it's like i've never kind of left the road so in my mind you know, I'm just writing about being on the road and reliving all those experiences all the time. So I haven't really missed it yet. Yes, absolutely. I mean, because there's one thing that I've noticed still with my 25 years is there's been a lot of films that have been made recently in the last couple of years of bands from that period. You know, there were the slits and the Dolly mixtures. And then there's the lots of indie bands like The Wedding Present and... Um, the go-betweens and the big and the chills. I mean, has has anybody ever sort of thought, "Fuck, we need to do a film about your life"? No, it's in the making. <laughs> oh, splendid! We'd love those films. <laughs> um, yeah, you are the first person I've told actually. Um, but um, yeah, someone's making a documentary, and but I wanted to. Um, John Jack. Who? Not Who's Julian. that artist I love you, Co? Bush. Bastia. You know, oh. Bastia, the artist. Yes, the, the, the New York artist. guy. Yeah, that's the one. Basquiat. Basquiat. Yeah, I know yeah, we all pronounce um, it differently. So um, he had this idea of music, music, film, and art, right? Yes. And I think that's it. It might have been David Bowie who came up with this idea. And that's what I want him to do. I, I don't want it just to be an ordinary, I want it to be a mixture of uh, my art and, you know, and, you know, the movie and and the autobiography kind of thing. Oh, yes. bio. Um, so I, you just kind of reminded me that I'll, I'll have to kind of have a, a little conference with them to see how we can do this. Yes, I mean, is it's it only this baby? It's only um, embryo at the moment. Because um, I didn't know, so embarrassing, that you're an artist as well, as well as a hairdresser. Jesus. Oh yeah, like um, some of my pictures behind me. I can see. There's a. I think there's a cat one. There is a cat one. I, I'm famous for my cat drawings. Oh, well, the other ones are cat, but it's like more or less Basquiat kind of style. Yes. So when did you, I mean, from your working class background, when did you start making art? When I was five. Right. Earlier. <laughs> Have you always doodled? Yeah. yeah. As well as write lyrics? Yeah. Yes. And then hairdressing? Huh? Did you, well, uh, my, mother, my mother and aunt um, pushed me in that because... Um, they thought I was artistic and, you know, hairdressing would be something that I could do. Yes. You know, a decent trade. Yes. <laughs> well, there you go. So have you ever put on exhibitions of your artwork? Uh, yes, but shared, you know, not, not just Charlie Harper. 
But um, someone did offer me um, one last year down on, I'm, I'm down on the coast outside Brighton. And um, on the other side of Brighton is Worthing. And yeah, uh, like a, a, a putting on an exhibition in Worthing, like a solo exhibition. I've never done a solo one yet. No, you must be tempted. Oh yeah, yeah, I'm working on it. You must be working. Yeah, so you've got to do a whole lot of whole lot of work. And where, um, where do you store? I, where where do you store your artwork? In your because you you've got a flat there. Behind me, there's a few against the wall. Um, over by the big, the window is the whole wall, and I've yeah. got a kind of desk there. What I paint on, and a little kind of um, a sh- kind of unit where I put all the paints and. Uh, on, but um, yes. I, so, the oh my god, oh nice flat. Can you see that? I can see that. And guitars. This is this is a very oh. nice flat you've got there. This is good. This is good. Yeah. So do you? So I mean, you know, obviously one doesn't get. You know, you must be a bit curious because you. You know, I remember seeing a Bob Dylan exhibition and obviously Ronnie Woods always doing his kind of exhibitions as well. So obviously, yeah. So yeah, it must be quite tempting to want to kind of archive your your work. Yeah, my wife's actually, you know, like as I do a painting, um, oh, um, some people are putting a, a book out on my art as well. Excellent, it's like all going. Stuff a book, because um, <coughs> it's meant this week, we mentioned that there's been, um, a rebellion festival um, online, okay. Yeah. Last night was a great night. We, me and my wife, um, we had um, a barbecue outside, and then it was getting dark. We thought we'll see all the shooting stars, which come out this time of year, and um, but they, it was clouded over. But um, we were just listening to and watching um, the rebellion festival, like online. Nice. Now, you know, on the nighttime outside, you know, and it was, it was neat. Yeah. It was very, yeah. I mean, these are great things. So look, just, I mean, if you were, were able, or you could have said something to a, an 18 year old self starting out in your sort of creative world. I mean, is there anything that you would have just said, look, I just want to a couple of pointers, mate, just, just listen to this. This is, this could help you, you, you know, stop some of those pitfalls. I just wonder what they would be. Well, that's what my book is mainly about. It's about, you know, showing young people that these things will happen and you could avoid them. But, you know, it's like your old learning curve. You know, you've got to have your downs. And, the, you know, our kind of life really is full of ups and downs. You know, I mean, we came on tour. We'd just done the best tour like we've ever done in Europe. And... Then this happened. Yeah, uh, the, the coronavirus uh, virus happened. You know, and but you know, I turned just turned seventy six, and to me, you know, the book is what I'm working on now. I'm still painting, and I'm very contented to just do that. I, as you see, I've got my guitars there. I still play every day. I still write, and I've just been on the lower to that guy in Ireland and we're going to release a single and um, so it's all happening and once this virus is blown over we'll be on the road yeah yes and 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 sort of are the band 
I mean, obviously, when you have a, these kind of enforced breaks, sometimes people don't kind of, they've had time to think about it and think, actually, you know what, I might knock on the head. At the moment, is the sort of the blind of other bands still very much kind of committed to hopefully next year and, and the next album and the next tour? Oh, yeah, we're working with, that's one thing we've got to do. I mean, is we're all working on the next album. Yes, and that's because you've done quite a few albums very recently, haven't you? You know, the last couple of years have been an album a year, basically. Yeah, we, we finished our, uh, we made an A to Z album. Yes. <laughs> that is 26 albums, A to Z. Another <laughs> kind of blues, brand new age, crash calls, diminished, so on, so on. And we just finished, a couple of years ago, actually, we finished the, the Z, which is Zizo, which means in Dutch, job done. And um, and now we're we've done two covers albums, which a company in uh, Los Angeles um, wanted us to do a couple of covers albums. The first one, you know, sold right away, and then they wanted another one. And um, now they need the third, but uh, another original album. Yeah. So we're all trying to do a real, real good original album. Blimey. And and do you feel like your songwriting? Your voice is as good as and as has ever been. Well, it was before I got this chest infection. Yeah. Um, now I wouldn't if I'd go out and do a gig now. It'd be a real, real struggle. Yeah. So um, everything. Don't worry. Everything's gonna like by the time this thing ends, my voice would be great again, and um, no worries. Just and do you have to? <laughs> and do you have to sort of do some practicing on your vocals? Do you have no. you? No. <laughs> now we were on tour. We were on tour with um, the um, Misfits, and Jerry, Jerry only, who I absolutely love. Um, but yeah, you, know, you hear him. And you know, we're just laughing. Um, but um, no, I, I couldn't do that. It's like um, once I was in Rome and I, in a hotel, and it was it was very romantic. You hear these opera singers practicing down the road, you know, because it was hot there. We had a windows open, and you hear all this stuff coming <clears throat> from these opera singers. Well, in opera, you think, yeah, okay, but in rock and roll, no way, no way. This is true. I'm just okay. Just last thing, because you know, phenomenal list of people that. Um, probably won't all get interviewed for the film, but is there anybody in particular that you kind of miss working with from that kind of, yeah, from those years, you know, that you thought that was a very- oh, oh, Nikki, Nikki mostly, because Nikki was always inventive and between us, we were very inventive. And I think I miss him and um, I hate to say it, but he's missing me because his music is kind of, to me, it's on a flat line. It's flatlining. Yes. <laughs> and he needs something to spike it up. Yes. And that, so, that is me. Yeah. <laughs> when was the last time, I mean, do you sort of... We haven't spoke for years. How did it end? Terribly. Was it? <laughs> <laughs> it was like a bad divorce. <laughs> and still, still to this day, you both... Well, feel... I'm not bitter. I, I still love the guy, but... Um, He's a bit, I think he's a bit bitter about me, yeah. Yes. Um, never mind. Go. Life goes on. Indeed, life does go on. Though, 
2020, it does seem a bit hit and miss. Anyway, that is the interview with Charlie Harper from the UK. Serves a big thank you for giving me the time for that interview. This has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me for some nice reason, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do at C86 Show. Also, all these have been archived, so you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, do C86 Show again. And it's all there. But anyway, look, all I've got to say is goodbye, have a good week, stay safe, and we'll meet again.